We as people are rather creative and rather selfish, I guess we could say. And we like to combine those things quite a bit, don't we? We like to take our creative abilities and use them to talk about how great we are. And one of the examples of this, it comes from a, a poem called Invictus by a guy named William Ernest Henley. You've probably heard this before. But I'm going to read the last stanza of this poem. He wrote, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, there's a part of that that gets in you and you go, yeah, that's right. I'm the master. No one tells me what to do. And listen, if that's all he was saying, that I am, I am independent and I'm strong, then that would be just fine. But you've got to look closely at what he says here. Matters not how straight the gate. If you're familiar with your King James Bible, Jesus didn't say enter by the narrow gate. He said enter by the straight gate. That is the tightly fit gate. How charged with punishments the scroll. Well, what scroll and what punishments are we talking about? We're talking about judgment day. So it, we've gone beyond saying I'm proud to be who I am and, and I believe I can accomplish anything, you know, like a, one of those posters from when you're in fifth grade. Now he's saying it doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter that I've got to face death someday, that I've got punishment coming, that it's a narrow gate. I am the master and I am the captain and it, I'm not going to submit to anybody, not even God. And we hear that and we go, yes, it's so inspiring. It's so wonderful. But in my opinion, this is utter foolishness. The disregard for judgment day, the disregard for God's righteousness is foolishness. But when you've been set free by God's grace... To return back to your sin and call that freedom is to remain enslaved to it. Any slave who escaped from the plantation and was set free maybe, but then continues to go back and pick the cotton and do the chores, he's not free, is he? So what do you do? Hey, I'm doing this because I want to do it. It's like, I don't, I don't think so. If that is, then, then you, you've got something wrong here. And now listen, we don't want to be slaves to sin. But the alternative is not some kind of radical, independent, self-determining kind of thing. It's actually another kind of slavery. Slavery to God by daily obedience to his righteousness. And as Mr. Henley has just expressed, our flesh rebels against even that. I don't want anybody telling me to do, not even God. Some folks would say, especially not God. But as Paul is going to say, you're going to be a slave somewhere to somebody. So the only question you have to answer is, who are you going to serve? Who's going to be your master? So let's look at this in verses 15 and 16, beginning with another one of those rhetorical questions that Paul loves so much in this book. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Paul uses these rhetorical questions in the book of Romans a lot to head off bad ideas. He'll say something radical and wonderful. And Paul has been around the block a few times. He's taught this many places. And he knows where some people are going to try to take his doctrine. And one of those places, as we've seen twice now, is, well, if I'm set free and I'm saved by grace, then it really doesn't matter if I sin, does it? This is very similar to what we had seen in, in verse 1, 
when he had said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, in verse 14, he had said, you're not under law, but under grace. Now, doesn't the fact that we are not under law imply that lawlessness is okay? And this is one of those things where folks say, well, logically it says, well, logic can take you in some weird places. It's a tool. It's not, it's not a master. And so Paul responds here with megenoita in Greek, which is by no means, or God forbid was the old way of putting it, or may it never be would be the literal way to put that. What are you nuts is my fi- favorite way of putting that. You see, because I'm under grace, not law, so I should sin as much as possible. Are you, are you nuts? Of course not. The whole point of this chapter in responding to both of those questions has been, don't sin. That was our title last week, Stop Sinning. And his reasoning for why was, well, if we're under grace and there's no law, then then no one can judge me for what I'm doing, right? Well, Paul explains here. He says, your submission to someone or something constitutes functional slavery. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? A slave is somebody who does whatever his master tells him. He says, so if you do everything that sin tells you to do, you are a slave to sin. And if you, therefore, are a slave to sin, you are not saved. Because that's the exact opposite of what it means to be saved. To be a slave to sin, how can you claim to be under grace? How do you know I'm a slave to sin? Because you're doing everything that sin tells you to do. He's using this metaphor of slavery. And the Roman church would have known a thing or two about slavery. In the Roman Empire, more than one-third of the population was a slave, or a doulos is the word for that. More than one-third of the population. There were three to five times, depending on what time you took the, the poll, three to five times more slaves than citizens of Rome. And citizenry was a privileged status to have. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen, and even the Roman guard that was taking, uh, taking him prisoner was not a citizen. So it was a privileged thing to be a citizen, and there were three to five times more slaves than citizens. In fact, there was a point where the Roman Senate decided that they were going to make all the slaves in Rome wear specially identified clothing so that everybody knew who the slaves were. They ended up killing that bill because they realized if we let all the slaves know how many of them there are, they're coming for us. So they ended up not doing that. And as we looked at the beginning of this, most of the Christians in the early church in Rome, they lived in the slums across the Tiber River, where all of the the tanneries were. This is where they would take the animal hides and they would tan them. They would make them leather and they would use urine as one of the primary ingredients to do that. So it smelled awful. And of course, it was uh, ceremonially unclean for the Jews to live there. And, And most of the dock workers lived there. And that's where the churches were, in these slums. And they would say that if a fire were to break out in one of these slums, that was it. There was no getting out. That's where these these Roman Christians lived. Most of them were slaves. So using this illustration would have hit home for them. Slavery implies ownership and obligation. You are owned by somebody else and you're obligated to do what they say. So the question here is ownership. Are you a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? So in order to figure that out, Paul says, let's take a look at your obligations. In order to figure out your ownership, let's look at your obligation. Who are you obeying? Who are you listening to? When God says this and your flesh says this, who do you listen to? And that's going to tell us who your master is. 
Jesus said it the same way in John 8, 34. Jesus answered the Jews. He said, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Paul knew some of the things that Jesus had said, obviously, and he's actually using some of what Jesus said and expanding on it here in Romans, which is a pretty cool thing, I think. Jesus had said that because he had given that famous, wonderful verse, the truth shall set you free. And we love that. But the Jews were offended by that. What do you say? Set us free. You're saying I'm a slave? I'm a slave to no man. I'm a proud Jew. It's a very sensitive issue for them because they had been slaves and then they were set free. And now they were slaves again, more or less, to Rome. But Jesus says you're, you're a slave to sin because you practice sin. And then here's the deal. Sin masquerades as freedom. Doing the wrong thing is always packaged as doing whatever you want. It's slavery that masquerades as freedom. You get to do whatever you want. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? But the problem is you are unable to do the things that truly matter. You can only do what you want. You are bound and unable to do any of the things that are higher and that God desires you to do. I can do whatever I want. I can lie as much as I want. Well, can you tell the truth as much as you want? Not really. You're a slave. Well, I can, I can sleep around as much as I want. All right, but can you be faithful? Can you live a life without being lustful? Not really. You're a slave to your sin. That's what slavery to sin means. The alternative to this is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And in fact, most of the writers of the New Testament had no trouble boasting in the fact that they were slaves of Jesus Christ. And this is very often translated servant or bond servant. The reason for that is because in our culture, we hear the word slave and, and we think in the Old South. And it was a very different institution, but don't, don't let anybody tell you that it was all hunky-dory and great. You were still a slave in the Roman Empire. But these guys don't mind coming in. Paul in Romans, Philippians, and Titus introduces himself as a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus. James and Jude, Jesus' half-brothers. Don't introduce themselves as the half-brother of Jesus Christ who grew up with him and knows all the inside stories, so you might want to listen. No, no, no. A slave of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, same thing. Introducing himself as a slave, a doulos, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What's a bondservant? It's a servant in bondage. It's a slave, a doulos. I know there are many folks in the church that don't much care to be a slave of Jesus Christ. They kind of want to think of themselves as an equal with Jesus. And I'm probably a little below him, but I'm not that far below Jesus, right? There was a, a pastor that we did ministry with in Nepal who came up after one of the teaching sessions and was a little upset because he didn't like that everyone kept referring to him as a servant of God. He says, I'm, I'm upper caste. I'm not a servant to anybody. So he had a suggestion. He said, I want to be known as the ambassador of God. It was actually like, this is okay, right? For me to stop calling myself a servant and start calling. And of course not. And if you have a cultural reason why you don't want to be called a servant, you really need to be called a servant of Jesus Christ. I'll never forget, this is a story from uh, Rod Parra, who is Amber Bryant's father, and he was a good friend of mine. We did ministry together. Uh, when he was a pastor in Danville, Virginia, there was this guy, people will, will do this, and we've been very blessed not to have this, but when the church is small, guys will try to sidle in and kind of get their foot in the door to have a position later on, and this guy called him up, and he said, hey, uh, the guys at work have been asking what my title is, 
at the church. And the itty bitty little church. And what, what's my title? And Rod saw right through that. And so he says, tell them you're a slave. <laughs> tell them you're a slave of Jesus Christ. It'll be a great opportunity to share the gospel. And the guy kind of sputtered on the end of the line. And if you know Rod, he goes, he goes what do you think I was going to say, man? You think I was going to say you're my assistant pastor? And he goes, well, well, aren't I your assistant pastor? He goes, this church has 10 people. I don't need an assistant pastor. <laughs> but I've always loved that. Tell them you're a slave. Because that's all we need to be as Christ Jesus, his servants, his slaves. Well, I'm an independent. I, I'm the master of my soul. You're missing the point. You are free in Christ Jesus, but you also, in a very real sense, are bound. 1 Peter 2.16, he writes, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as free and as a servant of God. Obedience, as Paul says, is functional slavery. Who you obey is evidence of your loyalty and your ownership. So don't think, well, I'm under grace. I can sin as much as I want. That demonstrates that you actually are not under grace because you're not serving the Lord that gave you that grace. Verse 17 But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So Paul rejoices here. He says in verse 17, but thanks be to God. He says, you all are now slaves of righteousness. You're not buying into this whole thing that I can sin as much as I want and call it free grace. Instead, he says, you have been committed to the standard of teaching and obey it. Very interesting little phrase there, the standard of teaching. And there's a lot of folks that have spent a lot of time trying to find out what was this teaching? Was it a specific like catechism that new believers got? Or was it some specific doctrine that Paul gave them? And I I really don't think it's that complicated. I think he's just saying you've been committed to the gospel. You've been saved. You've learned the doctrine of Christ's death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. And perhaps it refers to Jesus himself as our standard of teaching. The entire doctrine that comes with being a believer in Christ Jesus But I love what he says is not that the doctrine that was committed to you. He says you were committed to the standard of teaching. Remember, we're using the language of slavery and and obedience here. So he's saying you have been committed to that standard. You are underneath that standard of doctrine. You are in submission to it. You yourself are not the master of the teaching. This is a very important verse for those that have always existed in the church. We're not unique today, but there's always people that want to come in and say, really, it's up to us to determine what we're going to believe as Christians. It's like, that doesn't freak you out even a little bit to think that you're going to tweak with that. You're going to mess. Well, you don't really need to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's always something. You don't really need to believe that God created the world. You don't really need to believe in angels and demons. You don't really need to believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Do you really need to believe any of this? I think the evidence of that the folly of that is that the, doc, the denominations that embrace all that stuff, they, they shrivel up and die within just a generation or two, don't they? There's no life left because we are committed to the doctrine. As in, you know, you're going to do what he tells you. Remember when Mary told the, the servants at the wedding at Cana, I said, do whatever he tells you. Same thing for you and me. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Knowing the truth about sin and death and hell and God, the gospel and salvation by faith, it, it changes you. 
It captures you, you can say. We talk about being captivated by something. I mean, the word captive is in it, isn't it? I, I can testify to being captivated to the standard of teaching. It makes you a slave because once you know it, you can't get away from it. And I love in verse 19 that Paul acknowledges the limits of this illustration. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Because if you want to press the point, I mean, there's all kinds of things that describe who we are in Christ Jesus. Verse, chapter 8 is going to talk a lot about how we are children of God. And that's, that's even better than being a slave. But Paul's trying to make a point, isn't he? The point he's trying to make is stop sinning. <laughs> the point is you have to obey the Lord, not just claim to be with the Lord. It's all about, he says here, presenting yourself. He says you used to present your members as obedience to impurity and lawless. Now you've got to present your members as slaves of righteousness. What does it mean to present yourself? I mean, it means to show up for duty, right? He says, all right, I'm here. What do you have for me to do today? It's like stop clocking in to serve sin. Start clocking in to serve the Lord. Formerly, that's what you did. It was lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Sin always snowballs. But he says, now you've got to show up for duty for righteousness. That's the whole point of this passage. You are to be obedient, to show up in the morning and say, all right, Lord, what do you have for me today? And our folks hear that and they go, but doesn't that mean that you're just doing what somebody else tells you to do? You've, you've got to stop listening to those folks that want to make you, you've got to be self-actualized. You've got to determine for yourself what your values are and I want to use an illustration that I've used before, but consider the demoniac of the Gerasenes. Do you remember this? They came across the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and there they see this man full of demons. And he, wouldn't, he wasn't clothed. He was living in the tombs. He would cut himself with sharp stones. He would howl in the night, and, and nobody could even bind him. They had to kind of force him away from the city so that he wouldn't hurt anybody. He sees Jesus. Jesus casts the demons out of him. All those demons go off into the pigs. And there's that man sitting clothed and in his right mind. And in Luke 8, 38, he begs to go with Jesus. He says, let me go with you. I'll do anything you say. Now, if you're maybe still thinking that Invictus mindset, say, oh, come on, man. Don't, don't just bow the knee to anybody and, and tell them that you're going to do whatever they say. But you've got to ask yourself, was this man free? Or was he still in bondage? He was in bondage before. When he was doing whatever he wanted, he was in bondage. And so freedom for him was submitting to Christ Jesus. Was he now becoming a slave? Yeah, in a manner of speaking, but it was a greater freedom to be a slave of Jesus Christ than to be totally free to do whatever you want. He had tried that and it hadn't ended well for him, had it? And that's what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ. To present yourself, like the, like the, demo, the demoniac, the man who got saved. You show up to the Lord and say, you've cast out all of these demons, so to speak, out of my life. You've said everything right. You come up to Jesus and you say, tell me what you want me to do. I want to go with you everywhere. I'll, I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you say. That's presenting yourself for righteousness. So you've got to be like this guy and show up every day, show up for duty, to obey Christ and walk in righteousness. And you've got to be intentional about this. This is the practical portion of today. You, you've got to show up to the Lord daily and say, God, what are we going to do today? What are we not going to do today? God, help me to have that wisdom in the morning that, that gives me just the right scripture that I need for the day. Y'all have all had that happen, haven't you? You read something and you go, oh, that's interesting. And then later on, that's just what you needed. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. You've got to make sure you do that. You try to live your life as a Christian haphazardly, 
Meaning you don't do anything to strengthen yourself. You don't do anything to discipline yourself. You just say, well, when sin comes, I'll, I'll not sin. The devil is way more organized than that. He knows just how to get you. Have you ever been through the cycle of sin before? Like, that was great. And then like over three days, I was right back to where I was. Because Satan knows how to get you. He knows how to break down your defenses. So you've got to keep coming back to the Lord every day, multiple times a day, and presenting yourself for duty. Look at Psalm chapter 5. Great example here. Psalm 5 verse 3. He says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Why is he coming before the Lord to worship in the morning? Well, verse 8 says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. He says, Lord, first thing in the morning, I'm here offering sacrifices and praying to you because I've got to live life today and your enemies are out there and my enemies are out there. You've got to set your way straight before me so that I'll walk in it today. You know, there's no Bible verse that says you have to get up in the morning and do it, but there's a lot of biblical examples about getting up in the morning and first thing in the day say, Lord, Set me out on where you want me to go. Hear from the Lord. Commit yourself afresh. Before you turn on the TV, before you check Instagram or anything, before you, you check YouTube and start listening to your podcast and read your books, hear from God first. I've found a lot of times that if I find God first thing in the morning, I don't even have an appetite for the rest of that stuff the rest of the day. Isn't that wonderful? Whereas if I stuff myself full of other stuff, then later on when it's time for me to, I'm going to read my Bible this evening, this is my personal experience. I, I just don't have it, the energy to do it. Or I feel like, oh, the day is kind of over. We're all right. We're going to cruise to the end. It's already 530. There's no more time for sin left. And <laughs> turns out there is. So begin, at the beginning of the day, it doesn't have to be like, you know, crack of dawn, but at least before you start hearing other things, even if they're not sinful things, just get alone with God and hear what he has to say. That's what it means to present yourself to the Lord. To show up like for roll call and you're standing at attention and you say, all right, Lord, what do you have? What's the to-do list for today? And he says the goal of all that, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Here's that word that we've talked about a few times and this is where we actually see it in the text. So let's look at this word, sanctification. In the Greek, the word is hagiasmas. Maybe you've heard that prefix hagias before. It means holy, hagiasmas. So to be sanctified. And to be sanctified means to be set apart. It means to be set apart from other things. This room we call the sanctuary because it is set apart for a specific use, for holy use. Sanctify, to be set apart. Sanctification, you could, you could do this as holyfication. To be sanctified is to be holified, to be made more holy as time goes on. It was like they had the showbread in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle. It was holy bread. I mean, it was just bread, but it was set apart from other bread. And it was only be used for a certain kind of bread. That's why it was called holy bread. Holy doesn't mean magic. Holy means unique and special and set apart. And the same way we are to be unique, special, set apart. And this is the present aspect of salvation. We had condemnation which is the bad news, that you're going to hell because of your sin. Justification is when God declares you to be holy. I'm going to treat you as if you were righteous because of the blood of my son and the faith you have in him. Sanctification is when the Lord says, now, 
let's work on you. <laughs> let's make you holy. I've already declared you to be holy, but I want to see it lived out in your life. That's sanctification. It's the present aspect of salvation. There's a great little illustration we're given in this, in this section. Verse 17, he said, the standard of teaching. The word there is tupas. That's where we get the word type. And it can even mean a mold. It comes from the word to strike. So you would strike the mold, you'd pour the metal into it, and that's how you'd make coins or things like that. So consider it this way. You have been committed to the mold of Jesus Christ. You are to be poured into that mold, into that standard, until you look just like Jesus. The Lord heats up your life. He gets all the impurities out of it. He gets all the things that shouldn't be there. And as you become formed and shaped in his hands, you harden into the image of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, your whole life, everything that the Lord is doing in you is to cause you to look more like Jesus. That's sanctification. When you first got saved, you looked nothing like Jesus. By the time you die, hopefully, there's a major similarity. And hopefully every year you look a little more like Jesus than you did the year before. That's sanctification. To obey that standard, to follow the model of Jesus Christ. Now, in your sins, you couldn't live up to Jesus' standard. That's almost unfair to ask people to do that. Live just like Jesus. People will laugh at you. Like, yeah, I can't do that. Even people that don't even believe in Jesus. They're like, uh, yeah, it's a nice, nice thing to aspire to, with knowing that we'll never reach it. But you know what? The Bible tells us that because your sins have been forgiven, you are free to do that. And that the standard of Jesus is something that you can, I don't want to say achieve, because it's really not something you're doing, but like the whole goal is to look like Christ. And while we're never going to attain it in this life, I don't know that there's any limit on how close you can get to looking like Christ. Jesus even said in John 14, you'll do the things that I did and you'll even do greater things than I did. Jesus said that. And the present purpose of your salvation is to present yourself as a slave of righteousness, to climb into that mold, so to speak, and allow the Lord and the Holy Spirit to shape you into his image. And chapter 8 is going to talk a lot more about the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who accomplishes this in you. But I think you get the idea that we are no longer to present ourselves to show up for duty, for slavery to sin, but instead to Jesus Christ. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we might hear that and we might resent it. The thought of showing up for duty to Jesus, to say, I'll follow you wherever you go, to be shaped into the image of somebody else. That chafes against your flesh because you don't want to be a slave of anyone, not even God. There are many who don't even like using the language of slavery to describe salvation. Say nothing of the fact that the Bible uses it. So Paul explores that option. He says, okay, look, I get that you don't want to be a slave to anything. He says, so let's explore the option of choosing instead to be free in regard to righteousness instead of being a slave. And he reminds us of what a miserable option 
it actually is. He opens up and he says, okay, look, yeah, you are free, so to speak. If you're a slave to sin, you're free in regard to righteousness. You don't have to do it. You don't have to tell the truth. You don't have to be faithful to your husband. You don't have to avoid pride or anything like that. You can do whatever you want. There is a certain kind of freedom that comes with it. But he says, is that a, is that a good deal? Is that the kind of freedom you want? And this is what we hear all the time. Those that are walking away from Jesus, they love to extol, now I'm free. Isn't that what you hear all these people that walk away? I finally feel free to live my life. John Calvin said this, The greater mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol his freedom. The greater mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol his freedom. There's nobody that talks about how much they love being free than people that are bound up in all kinds of sin. And you don't even have to be a Christian to understand the foolishness of that. Because you look at somebody that talks about how free they are and you're like, yeah, but your life has fallen to pieces. A hoarder is free to keep and have anything they want. But they end up having nothing worth having. And they're bound by it. And they end up very often getting crushed by it, quite literally. He says, what fruit were you getting from those old sins? Well, I could do whatever I want. And how did that work out for you? Was that a good deal? And in verse 21, he says, these are the things of which you are now ashamed. And the end of them is death. Isn't that the true? Is, is sin freedom? It's not. Sin likes to act like freedom and tell you that you're free and allow you to think you're free for a little bit until it yanks the rug out from underneath you. Is lust freedom? I'm going to sleep with as many people as I want. I'm going to do whatever I want sexually and I'm not going to hold myself back. And we all know that the most promiscuous people are the most happy people in the world, aren't they? And we laugh at that because it's so true. And every, every young generation thinks they're going to figure it out this time. Because, of course, you're a young person and you are hormonal and you're trying to experience all that life has to offer. It doesn't matter how many people that are older than you and more wise and mature is it. Don't try it. I tried it and it was a mess. We even see in this culture, like, you know what? We've had all these sexual rules. Why do we have them anyway? Why don't we just, you know, free love, free sex, divorce whoever you want, and then all of a sudden, what happens? Oh, well, it turns out we're all getting sick and we're getting all kinds of diseases. Okay, so maybe we ought to try and do it, still do it, but do it the safe way. And now we're all having babies. Okay, well, what are we going to do about that? And uh, okay, now we're getting divorced and the kids are, are messed up because of all these divorces. Well, I mean, do we really need family anyway? I mean, maybe you should at least be committed as long as you're committed. And, and, and really you need consent because the, some of these interactions are not quite as as free as we think they are, and, uh, and the world is like slowly reinventing all the same rules that they tossed out a couple decades ago. And it's like, it, it's funny in one sense. It's like, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry at this. It's like, we told you. We told you this. And now they're trying the same experiment with gender, and they're trying it with everything else, and that's not going very well either, because it's not freedom. What about greed? I'm going to get out and make as much money as I can. Oh, so many pastors fall into this, you guys. They think, I'm so good at this church thing. If I could just leave and go out in the world where there's not all these rules, I could make an awful lot of money. And then they do, and their life falls to pieces. And we look at people that have money, and, and there's all kinds of people with money telling us, I don't, if you're looking for happiness, it's not over here. Everybody else goes, yeah, all right, let me get in there. Let me try it. What about laziness? Is laziness freedom? It feels like freedom. 
I'm just, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to work hard. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to take care of this yard. I'm not going to take care of this house. I'm not going to shower. Oh, I'm so free. I don't have to do any of this stuff. Many, many young men that go off to college for the first time say, you know what? I'm finally free. I'm not making this bed. I'm not, I'm not washing my hair. And then before long, they realize, all right, uh, we're going to have to do something about this. Because it's not freedom. Because you end up with nothing. You're so free to do whatever you want, but you don't accomplish anything. You, you don't meet anybody that you're going to be able to share your life with. And everybody gets frustrated with you because you're a burden to everybody else. Gluttony feels like freedom, doesn't it? I'm going to eat whatever I want. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to restrain myself. And then you get to the point where you are very much bound up. And you feel enslaved and trapped in your own body. Vanity feels like freedom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my whole life to get other people to look at me and love me and like me. And there have been people in the church that, that resent that. I, I can't remember who it was. There was some Christian singer, quote unquote, several years ago that was upset that the church was insisting that she had to be modest in all of her publications and things like that. She goes like, you know, we should be able to express our beauty and express our whatever too. And it's like, that's vanity. I'm so constrained by these rules that tell me I have to be this way. But is vanity freedom? No, that's a great way to make yourself very neurotic and fearful. Because all you ever think about is how do I look? And your entire life is defined by what people think of you. It doesn't have to be your looks. It can be your income. It can be the car you drive. It can be any of that. Drugs promise freedom, don't they? Expand your mind, man. You're, you're, you're bound up by just this world and you're going to take these things and it's going to make you feel good and you can feel good all the time. And, and we all know that th those things will, they will become your master. They all lead to death and shame, but they all seem so glamorous. And there are folks that have been saved out of that stuff that a few decades later start looking back and going, man, that's some good times though. That was that one time, oh, yeah, I mean, all that was bad, but I mean, I, that, that piece was good. You know who you sound like? The children of Israel wanting to go back to Egypt. Numbers chapter 11, let's read this, 4 through 6. The rabble that was among them, I like how Moses writes that, the rabble. Like, these weren't the faithful ones. These were the guys that were just kind of there. The rabble had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And we're like, are you out of your mind? You were a slave in Egypt. And you cried out to God to deliver you and now you miss the melons? The garlic? Really? We, we were able to take as much fish as we wanted. Yeah, after you finished making bricks for the day. Nothing but this manna, just this bread that miraculously appears on the ground every morning. The angel food. I'm so tired of angel bread. And to say nothing of the fact that if you had gone into the promised land when you were supposed to, you wouldn't have had to eat it for 40 years. But we're like, you want to go back to Egypt? They were ready to kill Moses and go back. What was your plan? Hi, Pharaoh. It's, uh, yeah, it's us again. We killed Moses and we'd really like to be slaves again, please. How foolish. Well, aren't we equally foolish when we resent the bondage of Christ and we long for the freedom of sin? And, and you see this, and it's one of the most heartbreaking things. Someone follows Jesus for decades and they decide, I'm going back to that old life. And it turns out it's not, there's nothing there for you. And it's embarrassing to watch. I'm going to go back and finally achieve that dream of being a rock star. No, you're not. You're going to embarrass yourself. I'm finally going to get out there and do whatever I want. And then you end up with nothing. 
foolishness. I want to go back to Egypt. Jesus is cramping my style. But now he says that we are both free and yet we are slaves of Christ. And the actions that you live in Christ Jesus bring abundant life and eternal life. This is an important note there. He says, the fruit you get now by following Jesus leads to sanctification and its end. The word for end, maybe you've heard this Greek word, is telos. It means the end or the purpose of something, the goal that you're striving for. What is the goal of our sanctification? Eternal life. Living forever in heaven with Christ Jesus and the new world that he's going to make. We call that glorification. It's all building up to that moment. So it's really better to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And like he said in verse 19, we are slaves of Christ in terms of obedience and ownership, but that doesn't capture it very well. There are other ways to put this. For example, being a slave of Jesus Christ does not emphasize the fact that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you work to do. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You tell me I've got to put the yoke of Jesus Christ upon me? Yeah, but it's easy. And it's a light burden. Is there a kinder master than Jesus? The Bible calls him the friend of sinners, the man of sorrows, the one who bore your shame on the cross and shed his blood for you. Jesus defines slavery to Christ in Matthew 11 as rest for your soul. What do you think some people would give to find rest for their soul? I'll be a slave to anybody if I had rest for my soul. And there are a lot of people that will try to trick you and say, I'll give you rest for your soul if you become my slave and they really are unable to deliver on the promises they make. But Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price for it. It's not a burden to carry following Jesus. It's true spiritual liberation. I'm finally free. I've got somebody looking out for me who loves me and cares for me. And because I'm his servant, when someone comes after me, it's his problem. Aren't you glad? Have you ever been working at, at the job and something comes up and you're like, oh, that's, that's something for the manager to deal with. And you just get to kick it up the chain and you go, thank God, I, I don't have to deal with that. Of course, my last job, I became the manager and it was all my problem. <laughs> But the Lord Jesus is able to handle all that. And, you know, this slavery metaphor also doesn't capture the nature of his commandments. 1 John 5, 3 says, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. I could just preach that. Oh, I love Jesus. Well, do you do what he says? Well, no. Then you don't love Jesus. That's not me. That's the Apostle John that says that. And his commandments are not burdensome. Aren't all of God's commandments for our good? Is there anything that Jesus tells you to do that isn't going to work out well for you? Even all those old food laws that they had in the Old Testament. We know now, oh, Jesus was keeping them from getting sick. You mean I can't eat pork? And Jesus is like, y'all don't have the technology to cook that pork yet. So no, you can't eat it. You're going to be wandering around in the desert. No, you can't eat bugs. I'm sorry. The answer is no. Right? You, no, you can't eat that. Or no, you can't eat snakes. Sorry. You can't any, eat any bird that eats dead things. Oh, the Lord's got such a burden on my diet and what I can and can't eat. What about the cleanliness laws? If somebody gets leprosy, they have to go outside the camp. We hear that and go, how barbaric. Uh, no, how hygienic. 
If you've got a, an infectious skin disease, you need to go out away from everybody else. And when somebody comes up to you, you've got to say, hey, whoa, man, I'm unclean. Don't touch me. Oh, so you're saying that they're evil? No, he didn't say evil. He said what? Unclean. Just unclean. Jesus got on the people later because they were trying to say unclean meant sinful. Not the same thing. I remember hearing somebody like, the Bible oppresses women because in the Old Testament, when the women were on their period, they had to go outside the camp and they, they were dirty and they couldn't be in. It's like, again, th this is something for their good. The Lord is like, this is hygienic. You need to be outside the camp. If you're going to sacrifice your animal, take it outside. If you find something dead on the road, don't touch it and certainly don't eat it. All of these commands were for the people's good. The Lord knew what he was doing, so shouldn't we trust him for the moral things too? He says, don't lie. Isn't that a good way to live? Stop lying. Usually we have a hard time stopping lying because if we were to start telling the truth, all the other lies we had told would become exposed. Sometimes the house has to fall down so you can build it back up again. It makes you have a better life. Honesty, patience. Isn't it good to not fly off the handle every time you get upset? The Bible says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Man, you work hard. You've got a good life ahead of you. Love your enemies. You know, if we all started loving our enemies, things would calm down pretty quickly, wouldn't they? The commandments of God are not burdensome. They make life better. And it is the height of immaturity to resent the commandments of God because he's telling you to do something that will be good for you. That's what teenagers do, right? Hey, don't forget, you've got to brush your teeth. You can't tell me what to do. Like, well, you've got to brush your teeth. I don't want you can't tell me how to live my life, Mom. It's like, this is for your good. And that's so immature because like, this is what you're supposed to do anyway. There is indeed a cost to following Jesus, but you've got to look to the reward too. And this is what verse 23 is all about. You're going to serve somebody, either sin or righteousness. So as you do when you're examining any kind of job that you're going to take, let, let's compare the pay. What kind of payday are you going to get serving sin? What kind of payday are you going to get serving Jesus? And that's why verse 23 is a memory verse for a reason. It sums up the gospel as well as gives us the motivation to live holy. The wages of sin is death. That word for wages, opsonion. This was an allowance. This was money that was given usually to soldiers, but it could also apply to slaves. So we're keeping this metaphor here. This is, you're giving walking around money. Yeah, you're going to need to get your, your food today, so here's your per diem. He's like, that's, that's the wages of sin. It's death. So it's not even like you're getting paid. It's you're, out of the graciousness of sin's heart, you're getting death. Death. Both now and then. This is death now and death forever. You live a life of sin, you're going to get exactly what you deserve. You reap what you sow. You end up like the prodigal son. You go out and you spend all your money and you live licentiously and you, you make a fool out of yourself and you hurt other people. You're going to end up eating the pods with the pigs, like in Luke 15. And you can't escape that. No one escapes. Nobody, nobody gets one over on God and manages to sin enough to enjoy their life. Folks, I'm not, well, I'm going to live my life for a few decades and then I'll come back to Jesus when I start having kids. Okay, then now you've got all this baggage that you're carrying with you. All these memories, all these pains, all these scars, all these hurts. Yeah, God will forgive you. The Father is always ready to receive the Son, but why would you want to do that in the first place? But you'll notice that he doesn't say the wages of God is eternal life because you can't earn your salvation. And your justification is not a reward for how sanctified you are. Instead, he says the free gift. This is the word charisma. It has grace in it, charis. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. 
You could never be righteous enough to deserve your salvation, not even after your conversion. And this is where we would have a serious contention with uh, Roman Catholic and other high church soteriologies. They say you get saved and then God sets you free to live righteously. So far, we're with them. But then they say, now you get to determine how long you spend in purgatory as long as you do enough of those righteous things to tip the balance back in your favor. And so if you don't do enough, you go to purgatory and you burn some of it off and then you get to go to heaven. No, we're, we're totally opposed to that. Your sanctification signals who your master is. And, it, and it, it evidences your continued faith in Christ. If Jesus is your Lord, then eternal life in heaven is waiting for you on the other side. That's such a burden to follow Jesus. Well, I get to go to heaven. Well, heaven's going to be boring. Oh, no, it's not. What a foolish thing to say. You've been watching too much Looney Tunes. Read your Bible when it talks about what heaven's going to be like. God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and says, all right, have fun. Go for it. Go live again, apart from sin, apart from Satan, apart from pain and burdens and tears. Is not deliverance from the fear of death itself worth slavery to righteousness? Isn't it worth strict adherence to a moral code if you knew that it was going to set you free from the fear of death? You know, we just had my grandmother's funeral over the weekend. And, you know, every time I've been to something like that, I think, I don't know how people that don't know Jesus get through things like this. How do you not just paralyzed with fear every minute of every day? There's an old Keith Green song. Is How can they live without Jesus? And I feel the same way. But in Christ, you have the deliverance from the fear of death. To say nothing of the fact that you will actually be delivered from death. And that death is just a passage to remove the sinful flesh so that God can redeem it and resurrect it and glorify it one day. And people like that, who have been set free from the fear of death, that, that see death as just something that's got to happen so that we can get to the rest of the story, those folks can change the world because they're not bound by any of the other stuff that everyone else is bound in. They've already moved on. You can't threaten them. You can't buy them. You can't bribe them. You can't come against them because, well, we've already died. I've already embraced and accepted death. That was the first moment of my salvation as I accepted death and I moved on. In fact, speaking of Rome and speaking of slavery, 1 Clement 55.2. 1 Clement was one of the apostolic father's writings. Not scripture, but it was one of the first guys that, that wrote. It's awesome. He said this about the early church. We know that many among ourselves have delivered themselves to bondage that they might ransom others. Many have sold themselves into slavery and receiving the price paid for themselves have fed others. This means that there were Christians in the early church who were not slaves when they found out maybe that one of their, their number was going to be sold down the river or was going to be separated from the family. They would sell themselves into slavery, take the money that they got and buy that person's freedom and they would take their place as a slave. Or they found out that so-and-so didn't have any money. You know, if I sell myself as a, you know, I'm a, I'm a wood carver, let's say. If I go to this master and I tell him, I'll, I'll be your slave if you pay me X amount of money, then, then I, can, I can feed them. They, they were willing to do that because slavery in this life meant nothing to them because the only thing they had left to do was to be righteous before God. And I think we as a country, and myself included, that are so proud and so defensive of our rights could learn a thing or two from that. What does it matter if my rights are being so-called violated if it gives me the chance to love that person and do something for them like Christ Jesus did for me? Contrast that with 
Invictus, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Well, guess what, pal? The gate is straight and the scroll is charged with punishment and you're going to have to face it someday. Are you going to let your pride keep you from that salvation? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, training us. So salvation trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you're not just saved to be saved. We're not just saved to have a nice community of people that don't do bad things. We're not just saved to maintain the culture. We're not saved for any of that. We're saved to be a transforming force of people who are zealous for good works, to go out and liberate the world from its slavery to sin. That's what slavery to Jesus Christ means. It means freedom in every other area of your life. So we've got to ask this question. Are you a slave to sin? Are you living your life for the wages of your actions? Sometimes we say, I just want what I can get from my life. I just want it to be fair. All right, the wages of that kind of life is death. Or have you received the free gift that Jesus Christ offered? What you deserved, what your life can earn, is what Jesus Christ took on that cross. The beatings and the mockery and the, the flogging and the nails in his hands and feet and the spear in his side and the suffocation and the taunts that he endured from all around him. The thirst that caused him to cry out to the Lord. That's what you deserve. That's what your life can earn. The wages of being the master of your own soul. But if you call out for his help, and you submit to the yoke of Jesus Christ, and you say, Lord, you've got to be my master. He'll deliver you from the old one. And you'll be granted forgiveness. But you'll be more than just a slave. You'll also be a son. You'll be a daughter. Set apart for the glory of God, but also for your good. This could be the day of your liberation if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have, let it be a reminder that you're not just living life for yourself. And Jesus Christ did not save you so that you could go out and do all the things you always wanted to do without guilt. He saved you to transform your whole life and then thereby to transform the whole world around you. That's what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ. It's a different kind of slavery. And in fact, it is true freedom.